Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacob, Future Tech Podcast. Um, my guest today is uh, Gerald Rison. He's a lawyer and an entrepreneur. Um, his firm is called Sword Shield Law. He's going to be speaking at the Bitcoin Super Conference coming up in February. And uh, Gerald's going to be talking about uh, token-based companies, how they can structure themselves properly to avoid uh, problems with you know, litigation and running into the, um, the bad side of any of the regulatory bodies that are out there. Uh, whatever they may be. So, Jerry, how are you doing? Yeah. So, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your background because you're not just a lawyer and, uh, you know, you're an entrepreneur. I want to hear the perspective that you have that's different from your, your run-of-the-mill attorney that just, you know, looks for problems in the law, for instance. Yeah, sure. Well, I practiced um, mostly at a firm called Gibson Dun & Crutcher for about 15 years as a corporate securities attorney doing deals around capital formation, mergers and acquisition, public and private company work. I went out on my own in the mid-90s in a time very similar to today when we had a new technology that which was gaining public awareness called the internet. And I did it so that I could be more entrepreneurial and take stock in companies and, and end up ended up co-founding a company in the late 90s, which was actually not in the internet space, it was in the telecom space, telecom software. Um, and since founding that company, I've founded or co-founded several other companies over the last uh, 20 plus years, always utilizing wow. my corporate securities business strategy, business law strategy, underpinning foundation to advance the success of our enterprises. But as you've done, what's what's the most notable one? What's the most interesting or exciting one that um, that you've done that you're most proud of? Well, I'm kind of a business model junkie, and I can get very excited about any environment that can afford innovation. The company that um, I, I co-founded that became the largest um, was actually in somewhat of a prosaic industry segment in the uh, real estate investment fund and other real hard asset investment fund segment called Behringer Harvard. We, but we did have a good, a lot of opportunity to innovate in that space. And we came up with brand new investment products that were very interesting. I'm still coming up with new investment products, although I'm not active space anymore. And that company grew to 
about $12 billion in AUM at its peak before the disaster of 2008. Um, and, and it's still operating right now. It's going to be called Stratera. Um, I'm no longer with it. Um, I'm pursuing other things. That's, that was the uh, that was my biggest success. My first company, Zybridge, grew to about a four or $500 million company before we sold it uh, relatively early after two, two and a half years. What got you interested in blockchain? You know, tell me about that and how you've evolved and gotten into the space more and more? Well, like mo- most older guys, um, uh, my kids got me into block. What, what happened actually is that a few years ago, uh, my son, who's a techie, he's in the cinematography, uh, virtual reality, and augmented reality space out in Los Angeles. A few years ago, he said, hey, dad, let me give you some Bitcoin. And so he got me, he bought me some, created a wallet and bought me some Bitcoin. And um, of course, I ignored it, um, and I don't have no idea where those Bitcoin are today. But, <laughs> but, but it was my first introduction, and frankly, I'm a bit of a technophile, even though I'm not a technical person. And um, so I've kind of watched it and paid attention. And in the last year, I've become convinced that blockchain infrastructure has the potential for as transformative effect our world as the internet has had. So. For the last year, I've been looking at it and and working with it very deeply. I run several organizations in Dallas around blockchain technology, which also obviously includes cryptocurrency, but certainly not the only thing, Um, and have been working with um, clients both as a consultant and as a lawyer with respect to blockchain and digital currency businesses and business models and products. What parallels do you see between the rise of the internet in the late 90s or mid-90s and blockchain? It's interesting. Um, it, it takes it takes a while for the the general public to adopt um, technologies, and frankly, it takes a while for technologists to adapt technologies to the general public. And we're at that earlier stage right now. Um, the really fascinating thing about blockchain is that its ability to support virtual currencies um, is an amazing um, proof of concept. Uh, if it if there's a technology that can be reliably counted on to support a currency environment, well, you can rely on it in many, many other contexts um, where mm. ledgers are kept or records are kept. And then with the advent of the concept of applications built on, over the underlying protocol, it's got at least as much as a basic information system like the Internet. How about, you know, where are we at in the, in the cycle, you think, with blockchain? Are we still, like, super early? Are we in a bubble? Uh, do you see coming crackdowns or pitfalls coming? Well, I, I would say we're super early. Um, it, we're we're at that early stage where the thinking about it is a bit utopian. It, the the people who talk about it talk about it in somewhat utopian terms, and um, and the, the people who they're talking to have no idea how to dispute or think critically about those utopian terms. Right? Um, it's a, it's the typical kind of technology curve where it comes out and it's seen as a, a solution to so many things, but it's a human system. So it's going to have weaknesses and that'll have to be adapted to. And maybe, maybe blockchain by itself, you know, doesn't quite do enough and you have to build things around it. Uh, maybe purity of distributed concepts is a, a weakness as well as a strength. And you have to build some checks and balances against that. And so when people start seeing the weaknesses, you're going to have a big drop off. That has not yet happened, but it's coming soon. A big drop off in the respect for the technology. Um, If you have a baseline at zero, you've got kind of blockchain way up at 100 right now. It'll drop down to negative 100 once people, as far as cultural feelings about it, once people see the weaknesses 
And then it'll level off and come back up to a 50 as it becomes uh, more obvious to be a, a working system. And then we'll go on steadily up from there. If you can kind of envision it in that kind of graphical way. How do you see industries react and how does uh, at a regulatory bodies react to a in new industry? What do you think uh, is coming? What will happen? Well, the interesting thing is this. Different industries and different enterprises are looking at it differently. I know that IBM has been secretly deeply in it. For quite a while, and has been managing a portfolio as a defensive mechanism of uh, a portfolio of virtual currencies, both to understand the space and be able to act, know that they can work with it, and think about how it might work with their dynamic, and so that they are in a defensive position, if need be, in respect of those of what may happen around virtual currencies or things they might have to use virtual currencies to accomplish. At the same time, as you know, they built. Uh, they're involved in in uh, ledger technology, um, and they're taking it they're taking it in a very kind of institutional way, and and not setting themselves up with uh, any unknown risk. At the same time, what's really interesting, and there's a lot of value in it, but a lot of danger as well. You see an awful lot of uh, young people who really have little appreciation for how to build a company um, or how to operate in a way that assures that future success can be actually relied upon and not destroyed by what you do today, just kind of jumping in and pretending there's no regulation at all. It would be a mistake to think that if you were in a hurricane, if you decided to loot, that that was not illegal because nobody was stopping you. Okay. <laughs> just as it's a mistake, the fact, the mistake there is that, well, the authorities are doing nothing about it. Well, the authorities are not equipped to handle massive amounts of criminal behavior. They're equipped to handle the episodic criminal behavior that normal happens. They can't afford to be there for massive criminal behavior. Well, the fact that there has been little in the way of attention by regulators doesn't mean what they're doing is unregulated or that they're not violating civil or criminal laws. So it's really astounding to me to think, to hear people say, oh, it's an unregulated space, true in the least. It's just that to this point, regulators who would regulate it are busy working nine to five on what they're already working on. They don't have extra resources or extra people to look at a brand new budding technology and industry, but they will. And when they do, if you're one of these parties who've decided to raise capital through most of the way people are raising capital with cryptocurrency, you're fairly much assured that any success you achieve is going to be at huge risk in the future to being taken away from you. What about um, companies that are you know, moving to Switzerland and not selling to Americans and when they do their ICO, but they're allowing them to trade the token on the secondary market? Does any of it matter? Or you know, can they run from this, uh, the coming regulation? Well, I can speak specifically to U.S. laws, and I've been an international attorney all my career, so I can speak generally to other generally developed countries' laws. But let's just talk about U.S. laws. So the U.S. has federal level, besides every state of the union, has um, what's called the 33 Act and the 34 Act, the Securities Act and the Securities Exchange. And the 33 Act, the Securities Act, governs the the initial sale of security. The 34 Act governs what happens after that and governs exchanges and things. Well, the 33 mm-hmm. Act, if preventing somebody from, does not keep you out of the coverage of the United States laws if um, you haven't really effectively done that. In other words, if there's easy ways for people to get around it and you know it. And number two, if you have a transferable instrument, which is deemed to be a security, um, every purchaser in the initial 
offering of the tokens going to have underwriter liability to any U.S. investor who buys. And that will reflect back to the company. So they're really not accomplishing that by keeping U.S. investors out. What does that mean, underwriting liability? What, okay. Let me give you an example. So, Let's say uh, ABC token does an ICO and they don't let any U.S. investors buy and they're in Switzerland. But yet now they get their token on all these exchanges and people are trading it on the secondary market, including U.S. investors. Right. So when you, under the 33 Act, if you have a security, now, now tokens don't necessarily won't necessarily be deemed to be a security. Um, I think it's a lot more binary than a lot of people think. It's either security or it's not. And frankly, I think it's likely to be a security as long as it's a transferable, freely transferable instrument, digit or whatever you want to call it, token. And there are means by which to transfer it. I think if that's the case, then what you got is a promoter, the issuer, who's issuing a investment vehicle whereby people expect to make money um, and it's transferable and generally really hard for it not to be deemed a security under the U.S. laws. That means you either have to register it with a several hundred page registration statement with the SEC and wait about six months or it has to be it has to be an exemption for it, which is generally an exemption. The, ge- the exemptions are generally around very contained offerings to qualified persons, generally accredited investors or qualified investors, as the case may be. But for those exemptions to work, well, you can't defeat the exemptions by using a conduit to end up being a contained offering. In other words, a broadly distributed offering. You can't, I'm just selling to Joe Blow, and Joe Blow is going to sell it all across the world in the United States. Joe Blow is the underwriter, hence underwriter liability. So in point of fact, <laughs> what what token buyers and sellers don't really know is that many of them are subject to liability under the U.S. securities laws, under underwriter liability. You mean an individual token buyer? Just as the authorities have very little capacity now to go after ICO (laughs) issuers, they're very unlikely to ever go after token buyers. Plus those token buyers, while not anonymous in that their private keys, excuse me, their public keys are... um, viewable in the blockchain, um, they're not easy to find, right? There's what they call it, pseudonymous. Anyway, they're not easy to find. And and it wouldn't be. The point is this, though. Those issuers who think they're avoiding U.S. liability are deluding themselves because when they sell through all these innumerable underwriters, they're just as liable for the securities laws violation. So the consequence is this. I mean, I don't really care about violating laws as such, right? I mean, I don't always go exactly the speed limit, go on a trip and then turn myself in for speeding. Um, there's, There's consequences that need to be thought about. That's the way you think about things. You think of it in terms of what is the risk? So to hmm. someone who is trying to raise cap in an ICO, and if they have acknowledged a risk of U.S. securities laws, have they really, so, so they must understand that risk, right? To understand that risk is rescission, that might have to give all that money back. They will have all the promoters, the officers, the directors will have personal liability. There's potential criminal liability. Are they avoiding that by preventing U.S. investors from buying in an ICO? The answer is clearly no. They're not. And the the big problem with the United States, and I don't know that it's something that is so common in any other country, but we have private rights of actions for failure to have good disclosure in connection with an offering and for rescission for offerings that are not properly registered. So basically what can happen is any plaintiff lawyer out there can have a friend of his buy one of these tokens and then say, oh, I bought your token in an underwriting and go right to the issuer and do a class action against them and take all of their money. I look at things as, okay, we have to take certain steps to have the success of an entrepreneurial activity. If we take steps that will be very harmful to us in the future, even though not today, 
why are we even taking these steps? I mean, why even pursue an entrepreneurial activity when we're building in all sorts of, of, of mines and traps, which will kind of make our life miserable and and impede our success in the future? Well, what, what about if, uh, you know, I look, I'm, I'm going to do a token offering and I look around and I see, okay, all these other guys are doing it. Um, I'm just going to do it and be 30% safer. But I'm still going to do it. And when their crackdown comes, because I'm not one of the most egregious companies, I'll be fine. How about that thinking? And do you think it, well, that, that if there is a crackdown, it will happen that way? Right. That's the thinking like, um, you know, Rich, if you and I are out hiking and we encounter a bear, I don't have to outrun the bear, i.e. the regulator. <laughs> I just have to outrun Rich. Hey, I'm going to work out a lot. But yeah. um, it's also the thinking around mobs, like in Charlotte, going to war with each other. I mean, you know, how likely are you going to be the one that's filmed and, you know, you go to jail? I guess that's just not the way I would recommend anybody, right? Um, but the bigger problem, the bigger problem is not the regulators, the bear chasing you. The bigger problem, I already know plaintiff lawyers are lining up the lawsuit. And there are hundreds of thousands of plaintiff lawyers. Now you've got to outrun 100,000 bears. If it's just you and me running against 100,000 bears, it's no longer me having to beat you. Issue securities in an unregistered offering, there's a rescission right to investors. In other words, to get all their money back. They can go and end the promoters, that is even like the marketers of it, the officers, the directors, are all personally liable. The underwriters, personally liable. Potentially some of these venture capitalists who are taking these tokens you know, in the pre-sales and pre-offerings, even though private offerings, they might be considered promoters and or underwriters. They can all be personally liable. There's also uh, criminal liability, but we're talking about personal liability from a private perspective. The other thing is that whenever one sells a security through the United States, uh, in the United, under the United States securities laws, there's something called Section 10b-5, which essentially says that whenever one sells a security, that seller must provide all information material to a reasonable investor to make an investment decision. White mm -hmm. papers don't satisfy that standard as drafted. If you want to see what satisfies that standard, be happy to send you a prospectus or a private placement memorandum. Frankly, a white paper is only the business section of a private placement memorandum or a prospectus. So there's just no hope. Once you have violated these rules, if anyone, yeah. whether regulator or plaintiff's lawyer, wants to go after you, all you can do is run. You can't really contest. Now, I do. I, now, I believe in... I be, this is not to say that I don't believe in the value of blockchain or tokenized businesses or tokenized products. I think there's huge value there. The, the question is, you, getting enough expertise and being willing to work with the expertise to build it in a way that doesn't provide a big explosion for you once you achieve any success uh, in the future or to subject you and your family to personal liability or criminal potential criminal liability. I have a model which I've been advising my clients to use and that I'm looking at, which I think does that um, and allows you to create a, a, a very interesting dynamic where you can tokenize a business, issue tokens, and um, issue it in a way that whether they're considered securities or not, you will not be um, creating any liability and can, um, and can take advantage of the tokenized environment. But it doesn't allow you to sell tokens freshly and explicitly by themselves to raise capital. It basically is a way to juice and enhance the probability of getting more traditional capital by having a tokenized business that is attractive to traditional capital. And those tokens can become a currency 
but are not the vehicle for raising the money. All right. Well, I mean, we're, we're kind of out of time, but I want to give listeners a chance, you know, if they're involved in a potential token raise, if they're running a company, if they're concerned about potential future liability, they need help structuring, restructuring. How can they get in contact with you and your, and your firm and your capacity as an attorney? So I have a website, and it's at swordshieldlaw.com. You can go see a little bit about us there. Um, my email is grison, G-R-E-I-H-S-E-N, at swordshieldlaw.com. The actual name of the firm is just Rice and Associates. You're not allowed to use a brand name for a law firm in Texas. That's just the URL. Um, but I also have a consulting firm where I do non-legal work called Primum Consult. And it's, uh, and I can be reached. Uh, uh, you reach me through the law firm, I can decide which way I want to go. Okay. Well, Jerry, very good. Thanks for coming. And I appreciate your perspective. And it's good to hear from someone that's been around for a while because, you know, things repeat in history. And uh, it's not, you know, the rules are not all different. So it would be uh, wise for people to be aware of what's happened before and Make sure they don't uh, fall victim to bad things in the future. Rich, I appreciate your podcast. Thank you. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.